I want to begin today by telling a story that I told several years ago. And in fact, it's the story that I opened my book, The Hospital Believer, with. It bears retelling today because it, it leads us into the text that we're going to deal with from the Gospel of John, the second chapter. It's about how uh, several years ago, Sharon and I, along with our oldest son, Caleb, visited the Louvre in Paris and enjoyed a day exploring the largest museum in the world. And we especially wanted to make sure that we would see the Mona Lisa, arguably the most famous painting in the world. And so we, like most people, organized our day around making sure that we'd see it. And um, when we got to the room where the Mona, La Mona Lisa is displayed, I was stunned by the fact there were hundreds of people jostling, uh, elbowing each other, taking videos, taking pictures, almost like a massive paparazzi, taking a picture of the Mona Lisa hanging by herself on this massive wall. The truth is, I was a little bit underwhelmed by the Mona Lisa. I'm fairly aggressive. I got up fairly close to the front. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was beautiful to see. But then I turned around, and on the opposite wall in this large room was the largest painting in the Louvre, the Wedding Feast at Cana, painted by the Renaissance painter uh, Veronese. And um, this painting, it occurred to me immediately, is what the Mona Lisa looks at. This is what she sees all day long. And I was stunned by this painting and stunned by this, the, the way that Veronese places Jesus in the center of this great banquet. He, he paints it uh, uh, in, in a context of classical uh, Greek architecture and so on, but he, he paints the wedding at Cana. He puts Mary and the apostles around Jesus he paints historical figures, contem figures contemporary to him. He paints himself in this painting. But the thing that caught my attention more than anything else is here is Jesus sitting in the center of this great banquet. I hope that you can see it well, but um, here Jesus is sitting in the middle of this great banquet, light emanating from his head, and he's looking directly at you. No one else in the painting is looking at you, but Jesus is looking directly at you, and you get this sense that Jesus is inviting you in. It's almost as if he's saying, come and experience this with me. I wanted to stand in that room, Mona Lisa, wedding feast at Cana, and I wanted to shout to the hundreds of people looking at da Vinci's Mona Lisa, you're looking at the wrong thing. Or at least, you're looking at the lesser thing. Why don't you turn around and look at what she looks at all day? Because if you look at that, you're going to see something infinitely more important. Because we're told in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, that the wedding feast of Cana was the first sign where Jesus revealed his glory. So when we sing, show us your glory, we need to make sure that in our mind we see a picture like this. Jesus sitting at a great wedding feast inviting us in. Last week we began our Lenten series, The Story of Jesus. The theme verse 
for the series is John chapter 1, verse 18, where John wrote, No one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son, whose being is back at the heart of the Father, He is the one who came down and explained God. Each week, through, the, through Easter Sunday, we're focusing on a story or a section in the Gospel of John to try to learn about what that story tells us about God. And today we're going to focus on this story, Jesus turning the water into wine. It's fascinating to me that according to John, again, the first time Jesus chose to reveal his glory was here. When we're talking about God's glory, we're, we're, we're describing God's self-manifestation. When God shows us his glory, he's saying, here I am. This is what I'm like. And it's pretty incredible to me that Jesus would choose to reveal the glory that he had as God and the glory that he had with God since before the beginning of the world by turning water into wine at a wedding feast. So let's read the story. It's only 11 verses. And then I'll take, go back through it in sections and make some observations about the text. And then I'll offer uh, three things that we learn about God's glory and ourselves from this story. Okay? John chapter 2, verse 1. Now on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding too. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus says to him, they don't have any more wine. And Jesus says to her, what are you trying to do with me, woman? Which wasn't as disrespectful as it sounds. This is how Jesus, in, in his vernacular, addressed a, a, a number of women that he met. The woman at the well, well, he addressed the same way. It's just the way, it doesn't, all right. Anyway, what are you trying to do with me? He says, my hour has not yet come. His mother says to the waiters, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now there were six stone water jars sitting right there for Jewish purification uses, each jar holding between 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus says to the waiters, please fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the top. Then he says to them, now please draw some out and take it to the head waiter. Now when the head waiter tasted the water become wine, and he had no idea where it came from, but the waiters who had drawn the water knew where, exclamation mark, the head waiter comes over to the bridegroom and says to him, everybody else serves the choice wine first, and then when people are lightheaded, the inferior wine. But you, for some reason, have kept back the choice wine until now, exclamation mark. Jesus did this first of the signs in Cana of Galilee and so manifested his glory that his disciples put their trust in him. So observations, three sections of this story. The first from John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the beginning of the story. By the way, during this series, we're featuring the beautiful translation of John by Frederick Dale Bruner. It's embedded, if you've been looking for it, and I, we heard this week that some people were looking for it, it's embedded in his marvelous commentary on the Gospel of John. If you want to buy a 2,000-page you know, book, you, you can find Bruner's uh, uh, translation there. So John chapter 2, verse 1, now on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding too. You know, everything's always important in a text like this. And we, we start getting into the important part with the first few words on the third day. 
on the third day of what? Well, as other translations will show you, this was three days after what I closed my teaching with last week from John chapter 1. In that story, we learned that the first two followers of Jesus were, very important, disciples of John the Baptist. Andrew and presumably John. And then Andrew found his brother Simon, who was instantly renamed Peter by Jesus. And then Jesus found Philip and called him. And then Philip found another guy called Nathaniel. I don't expect you to remember all this from last week, but nonetheless, uh, Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, we found the one we've been looking for, the one that Moses and the prophets prophesied about. And, 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 And he said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, how can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, Philip said, I love these simple words, come and see. And he takes Nathanael to Jesus, and Jesus looks at Nathanael, and he said, I saw you while you were over there under the fig tree, and I heard what you said about me, you, but, but I'm going to not get upset at you because you said something mean. I'm going to commend you because you're not a phony. You know, you say what you think. Like I said last week in one service, Nathaniel could have been from New Jersey. So Jesus says, you know, I, I like your bluntness. And Nathaniel says, how did, how did you hear me say anything? I was over there you, you, a long way away. He said, because I heard you while I heard you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, oh, you must be the son of God. And Jesus says, you think that was something. You're going to see a whole lot more than that. And then it goes, John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus says to him, amen, amen, remember, I talked last week how Jesus is the only one in all the Gospels who said amen before he said a thing. Everybody else says a thing and says amen, but Jesus said amen before he said it because he knew what he was going to say, and he already agreed with it. But when he really wanted to say something important, he would say amen, amen twice. In the NIV, sadly, it's translated very truly, but it literally should be translated amen, amen, I want, and this is Jesus, now why am I talking about John 1 when I'm teaching about John 2? Because we have to locate ourselves in the text properly, and John 2, 1 starts out by saying three days later. Three days after what? Three days after Jesus said this to these disciples of John the Baptist and these religious zealots now who were now following Jesus. Then Jesus says to him, amen, amen. I want to tell you all something very important. You are going to see the opened heaven and the angels of God ascending from and descending on the Son of Man. This was three days before Jesus is sitting at the wedding of Cana. One must assume at the wedding of Cana what he said three days ago is coming true when he says, Nathaniel, you think that was something that I read your mind when you were over there out of my sight? Wait a second. You're going to see God's glory revealed in such a way that heaven's going to open and the Son of Man is going to do his thing. And it's going to be like a ladder was happened between heaven and earth. So in that text, three days before the wedding at Cana, Jesus, several things happen. They're very important. Aren't, I talked about last week. I'm just trying to connect us now to, to the three days before now when I remind you that Jesus here introduces himself as a son of man. This was the, fa- this, 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 this was the way Jesus most often referred to himself. 
And when he talked about the fact he was a son of man, he was, he was referring to the fact that he was both fully God and fully man. Son of man speaks for itself. He was a human being. He was fully human. But son of man also referred back to Old Testament prophecies about who the Messiah would be. An example of that is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel said in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him, this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Now here we are in 2021. We hear Son of Man. It's like we don't think about it. But to these disciples gathered around Jesus, when he referred to himself as a son of man, it was like, wow, he is claiming divinity. He is saying, this guy standing right here in front of us is saying he's the one before whom all the nations of the world are going to bow down. All right? So this is a big deal. And then Jesus also said, and and you're going to see heaven open pretty big thing for some. Here he is. He's just standing there, a guy, right? A carpenter. And, 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 and uh, no one's heard anything out of this guy. He's about 30 years old, and he declares himself as a son of man, and heaven's going to be open. And if you think it was great that I said that to you, Nathaniel, just wait. Just wait. You're not going to believe what's going to happen. And then three days later, it starts to happen. Jesus Christ sits at the wedding feast of Cana, God and human eating, drinking as a human being, and, it, and, and then he has an opportunity to perform a miracle, and heaven opens, and God's glory is revealed in what happens. Now, something else really important in this story is that his brand new disciples are with him at this feast. The text tells us that. Who are these brand new disciples? These, these are former disciples of John the Baptist. How long ago were they disciples of John the Baptist? In some cases, three days ago. All right? And you have to, and here they are, the disciples of John the Baptist and their new religious law-abiding Jewish friends, and they're about to see God operate in a way they never would have imagined, and that John the Baptist would probably even have not liked very much as we'll talk about later. See, John the Baptist was famous for fasting. John the Baptist was, when he ate, is eating locust and wild honey. And now here all of a sudden, these guys, it's like whiplash. They're hanging out in the wilderness with John the Baptist trying to find clothes that match his and they're looking for burlap to wrap themselves in. And now here they are three days later with some guy who claims to be God and he's sitting at a party Is he or isn't he? He's sitting at a party and he makes more wine to keep the celebration going. If you're a disciple of John the Baptist, what are you thinking? But what's happening three days later? Jesus is saying, this is what the Son of Man does. And this is what it looks like for heaven to be open. And this is what it looks like, at least in part, for God's glory to be revealed. 
Now, another person, of course, the text tells us in the first two verses was there, was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Obviously, this is very important to the story. This is actually the last time Mary is mentioned in John's gospel until she's standing at the cross, and we know that story. So now let's pick it up in John chapter 2, verse 3. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus says to him, they don't have any more wine. And Jesus says to her, what are you trying to do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. His mother says to the waiters, whatever he tells you to do, do it. He hasn't even said he's going to do anything. But she says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now there were six stone water jars sitting right there. Why were they sitting there? They were used for religious purposes, Jewish purification rites. Each jar holding between 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus says to the waiters, please fill the jars used for religious purification, <laughs> please fill the jars with water. And they fill them the water. And he says to them, now please draw out some and take it to the head waiter. When the head waiter tasted the wine, the water become wine. And he had no idea where it came from. But the waiters who had drawn the water knew where. The head waiter calls over to the bridegroom and says, everybody else serves choice wine first. And then when the people are lightheaded, the inferior wine. But you, for some reason, have kept back the choice wine till now. I mean, wow, the story's just too good. Now, there's a practical problem that Jesus is fixing here. It appears, and we can't miss this, it appears that he had good friends, good enough friends that they invited him and his, his entourage to this wedding feast. And um, his good friends run out of wine at the wedding feast. Now, this is a major cultural faux pas. This is a major social event at that time. Typically, wedding feasts would last seven days. Now here they are somewhere around three days into the wedding feast, and they've run out of wine, which probably means four days of the wedding feast, and the host aren't providing wine. And um, here Mary sees this, and she cares about it, and she talks to Jesus so Jesus can fix the problem. Now, now let, let, let me just say, all of us run out of wine sometimes. I'm not talking about Cabernet. Wine in Scripture is a symbol of life. And sometimes marriages run out of wine. Now see, it's one thing to run out of wine at the wedding feast. It's another thing to run out of wine three years into a marriage or five years into a marriage or ten years out of, into a marriage. Do, do you have a sense of what I'm saying? Where you still have the marriage but you don't have the life. Wine is a symbol of, of, of life in Scripture. Sometimes we run out of wine emotionally. Sometimes our, our passion uh, for work and even play runs out. Sometimes all of us at some point in our life, and typically at several points in our life, just find ourselves empty. We're living, but there's no life. We're existing, but there's no life. The, the wine has run out, and all we're left with is water. The fact is that Jesus cares about that. At first in this story, he seems not to care, right? He says to his mother, he says, why, why are you asking me to do this? Now, here's my take on this, um, and, and I, there, there's lots of reason uh, uh, it, from uh, scholarly reasons for this take, and it, it's this. First of all, when Jesus says, my hour is not yet, his hour, when he uses that language, he's talking about the crucifixion. 
And when he does his first Son of Man opened heaven thing, the clock is going to start ticking toward the crucifixion. And he essentially says, Mom, I'm not ready yet to set in motion all the events that's going to take me to my hour. My hour is not yet. My time is not yet, some translations say. It's almost as if Jesus, the human being, because he was a human being. He was God fully, but he was fully human as well. It's almost as if Jesus, a human being, said, can I just enjoy this celebration? My hour is not yet. And it's like Mary feels like it's time to get it going. And she says, whatever he does, you do it. Now, there, and, 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 and so Jesus then, he, he turns, part of this is very simple. He turns, he, he makes more wine in order to serve these people who've run out of wine. And that's part of how you have to look at it. The, the, the reality is that, that we should assume that Jesus cares about whatever you've run out of and that he'll make more of it. And the fact is, his hour now has come, and he did what he needed to do to bring you life in all of its fullness through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. And when he looks at you standing there saying, Jesus, we've run out of, he says, okay, let's get busy making more of what you need to have the life I dream for you. But there's an even more important theological message that's conveyed in this story. And this is big picture stuff, but it's very, very important. This is an amen, amen. This is important thing. That is that the Jewish prophets had prophesied that the Messiah would come at just the right time and bring renewal to Judaism and usher in a new age. That dead religion would be replaced by spirit-breathed life and revival. In these prophecies, frequently in the Old Testament prophecies, wine in abundance was mentioned as a sign of the new age the Messiah would bring. And I think that this might have been part of what Mary had in her mind. I think Mary was not only saying, let's help this couple. I think Mary was saying, Jesus, I know who you are. Now, now it's time to get this thing going that you came to do. Son, it's time to make wine. See, she knew he could bring new wine. The same prophet who prophesied Isaiah about her bringing God into the world. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God's with us. The same prophet who, who prophesied that. And you know now Mary's made a connection to that. These were observant religious Jews. She knew what the prophet prophesied. She knew that she was the virgin who had brought God into the world. She knew what he came to do. She also would have been in touch with other prophecies 
prophecies about the change he would affect in the world, like this one, Isaiah 25, which is a prophecy that talks about what the world looks like after the Messiah comes and does what he does, where it says, on this mountain, Isaiah 25, 6, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. It's almost like Mary saying, Jesus, come on, we know who you are. This is a pretty good opportunity here. Here you are at a feast, and they're out of wine, and you've come to start a new thing. Why don't you go ahead? Hey, guys, whatever he tells you to do, do it, because he's about to affect an entire new reality in the world. He's about to be the one who brings a feast where there's an abundance of wine and the best of wine, and he's going to do more than that. He's going to wipe the tears from people's faces and so on. All right, keep that in mind if you would. And then there are these six stone jars. These six stone jars. I mean, these were jars that were only used for Jewish religious washing rituals. And obviously, these are observant Jews. You don't touch the jars. But Jesus says, he could have done this any way he wanted. Give me those jars. These Jewish religious purification jars that were held 20 to 30 gallons of water. And Jesus takes these empty religious containers and he fills them with new wine. And it's kind of like this is his message. Okay, Okay, Mom, it's time to start the clock ticking on my hour. My time has come. I'm going to take your empty religious stuff, and I'm going to fill it with life. I'm going to take your empty containers and fill them with wine. The new age starts now. Let's let's get this party started. Now, of course, the way to receive what Jesus came to do is, as Mary said, it's to do whatever he says. And what he said is, the way that you connect to the feast that I began is to believe in me and act accordingly. See, when we trust him and take action in alignment with that trust, he brings us new life. So if you've run out of wine in your life, do whatever he says. If you've run out of wine in your spiritual life, do whatever he says. And then, of course, there's this, the new wine was better than the old wine. I mean, I could literally preach this all day long. Now, this is a theme. Don't tempt me. This is a theme. This is a theme throughout Scripture. The Old Testament, for instance, says that the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. That was talking about the temple that had been torn down and been rebuilt. But it's a principle that finds its way all the way through Scripture. It's like when God does a new thing, the new thing is better than the old thing, which should always give you hope when you're just standing there with, with your empty thing. That God says, you know what, I can do something better than what you ever had before. The glory of the last thing is going to be greater than the glory. The glory of the next thing is going to be greater than the glory of the first thing. And so, you know, here's the last verse of this text. John 2.11, Jesus did the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and so, so manifested his glory. Get this, guys. Here's here's how this is to be read. 
Jesus did the first of his signs in Galilee and so manifested his glory that his disciples put their trust in him. His disciples believed because he sat there at a wedding feast and turned water into wine. The NIV says what Jesus did here in Cana was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Now this is a prime example of Jesus explaining God to humanity. Do you want to know what God is like, John said? Look at Jesus. You'll see what God's like. Wait a minute. God's like this? This is what God's like? God sits in the middle of a wedding feast and turns water into wine. That's not what we thought God was like. He's revealing his glory. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by this, guys. After all, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast that a king threw for his son, and everybody is invited. The kingdom of God is like a wedding feast that a king threw for his son, and everyone is invited. So let me now Talk about three things we learned from Jesus about God's glory and ourselves in this story. Everybody doing okay? Here's the first. It's how to be human. How to be human. Jesus didn't only come to show us what God's like, which is our theme in this series. John 1.18 again. He also came to show us what a fully realized human being is like. He came to explain to us what it's like to be human. He, he was God, and he was man, and he was a perfect man. In, later in John chapter 2, John wrote, Jesus did not need anyone to give him testimony about the nature of the human being, you see. He himself knew quite well what is inside the human being. Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary wrote, we already know that Jesus knows God very well, but now Jesus will explain human beings quite well as well, both their deepest needs and their deepest possibilities. We must see Jesus as the model of flourishing humanity. See, our connection to God is not based on religious ritual. Our connection to God is based on a person. And that person is Jesus. When Jesus came, heaven opened. He became the way between us and heaven, see? We're told in Scripture that there's one God, and this is, I think, in 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy. I think it's 2.15, but I could be wrong. He said, he said there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The humanity of God, the, pardon me, the humanity of Jesus connects us to God. And we have to understand then that for us, our faith is in a person and our mission, if you please, is to know this person and to learn to live like this person. But the beautiful thing is, is that this person will help us to be like him if we'll trust him. So Jesus is a model of flourishing humanity. He's what we're aiming for. It's what we're supposed to be like. We say that we want to be like Jesus. Well, uh, Joshua Chatrow in his book, Telling a Better Story, said, during his time on earth, Jesus lived a life that was and remains a breathtaking picture of the ideal human life. 
He combined, he combined power with humility, innocence with courage, truth with generosity. His compassion beckoned the most vulnerable and brokenhearted. He healed people of their physical and spiritual sickness. He taught with authority like no other. He stood for justice while offering forgiveness to all, even to those who killed him. In all this, Jesus is the picture of a perf perfect human flourishing. I love the work of Philip Yancey, and I love his book called The Jesus I Never Knew. Yancey wrote, the image of Jesus I grew up with is, in short, the Prozac Jesus. In contrast, the Gospels present a man who has such charisma that people will sit three days without food to hear his riveting words. He seems excitable, impulsively moved with compassion or filled with pity. The Gospels reveal a range of Jesus' emotional responses, sudden sympathy for a person with leprosy, exuberance over his disciples' successes, a blast of anger at cold-hearted legalists, grief over an unreceptive city, and then those awful cries of anguish in Gethsemane and on the cross. Later, Yancey says, Jesus lived out an ideal for masculine fulfillment that 19 centuries later still eludes most men. For instance, three times at least, he cried in front of his disciples. He did not hide his fears or hesitate to ask for help. Like most of Jesus' contemporaries, Yancey goes on, no doubt I would have balked at the odd combination of extravagant claims coming from an ordinary Jewish man. He claimed to be the son of God, and yet he ate and drank like other men and even got tired and lonely. What kind of creature was he? And then Yancey says that, he, he says this hints at the depth of the incarnation. The incarnation, of course, meaning God becoming a man. And then he quotes the philosopher Jacques Maritain, God is vulnerable. In Jesus, God becomes vulnerable because Jesus fully embraced his humanity. He was a man. He was a man, and the story of Jesus should encourage us to fully embrace our humanity as well. If in Jesus God became vulnerable, what does it look like for us to be honest enough about our own humanity, to be vulnerable as well, to say I am just a human being? There's this great story I, I just read in uh, uh, Eric Larson's The Splendid and the Vile about, about Winston Churchill. Uh, as 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 you you know, uh, when when Germany and and England uh, declared war on one another, the the bulk of the war in the first year was Germany just decimating England with their with 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 the Blitz, and um, um, uh, England was just getting the 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 uh, for lack of a better word heck just blown out of it. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was terrible. And Winston Churchill knew that the only way that England could survive the Second World War and for Hitler not to essentially take over all of Europe was for him to convince Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President of the United States, to declare war against Germany. And so for about a year, Winston Churchill, who didn't really know Franklin Delano Roosevelt very, very well, I think they perhaps met at some point, but they didn't know each other. He's sending him letters and he's sending emissaries and 
trying to talk Winston Churchill into joining the war. Finally, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt declares war on Germany, and as soon as he does, Winston Churchill gets on a ship with about 50 of his staff, and they travel across the Atlantic so Winston Churchill can meet in person with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. A long way of getting to a simple uh, story, and that is the first night that Winston Churchill is in, is, is in the White House. He's staying in, in, a, in, a, in a room in the White House. Uh, he, he, he's in the room. The only other person in the room is, is his bodyguard, uh, Inspector Thompson, who was always by his side. And, and um, there's a knock at the door, and, and Inspector Thompson opens the door, and there sits Franklin Delano Roosevelt in his wheelchair alone. And Roosevelt looks at Thompson and then looks past Thompson, and Roosevelt has a, a look of stunned surprise on his face, and Thompson turns around and looks, and there stands Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, stark naked, with a cigar in one hand and a drink in the other. And the President Roosevelt, as one could imagine, was embarrassed, and he starts to turn around and wheel himself away, but, but, but Churchill said, come on in, Franklin, we're quite alone. The president offered what Thompson called an odd shrug, then wheeled himself in. You see, Mr. President, Churchill said, I have nothing to hide. <laughs> If you've seen pictures of Winston Churchill, you might find that hard to believe, but he was completely vulnerable, obviously, in that moment, and comfortably being vulnerable. You see, Mr. President, Churchill said, I have nothing to hide. Churchill proceeded to sling a towel over his shoulder and for the next hour conversed with Roosevelt while walking around the room naked, sipping his drink, and now and then refilling the president's glass. What does that have to do with anything? I don't know, but it's a great story. I think that it is amazingly freeing when we just get honest about our humanity. When we do not try to cover up our humanity. When God showed up in the person of Jesus, God became vulnerable. God said, here I am in this person and I have nothing to hide. And what an amazing thing it is when we learn from Jesus that we should fully accept the fact that we are just human beings and we should embrace our humanity. Psalm 32, 2 says, what joy for those whose lives are lived in complete honesty. See, Jesus was God and he was a perfect man. We are not God and we are not perfect people, but the only way to become more like Jesus, who is the perfect man, is to be honest about who we are, to stand, if you please, naked and unashamed before God and to say, here I am, here I am. Help me to become more like you. God doesn't help us become less human. He helps us become better humans. See, a lot of people have this idea about spirituality that is not at all a picture of God sitting in the middle of a wedding party making more wine. But the fact is, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to understand that he revealed his glory in that very human moment. Here's the second thing we learn about this story and ourselves. It's how to enjoy life. 
Now, this is a favorite topic of mine. Those of you who've heard me teach for years have heard me, you know, once every, every little while, I'll do something on this because I think it's so important for sincere religious people. How to enjoy life. Spending seven days at a wedding feast with friends and loved ones was not an aberration for Jesus. Again, Frederick Dale Bruner says we may highlight Jesus' frequent presence in social settings in all four Gospels. Jesus was clearly not a recluse, a hermit, or an unnaturally religious person. He was invited to meals and parties, and he came to a number of them. He is constantly, and I talk about this a good bit in my book, The Hospital Believer, have a whole section on it, constantly at dinner parties, hanging out with all kinds of people that regular religious people wouldn't associate with. And, and, and so this is what Jesus said of himself. This is Jesus. This is red letter right here. Jesus said, Matthew eleven nineteen, the son of man. Now remember what son of man means. This human being who is God came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. Now let's clear this up real quickly. He wasn't a glutton and a drunkard. Gluttony and drunkenness are both sins, and he was sinless. He was saying, though, that he ate and drank in a way that people accused him of being something he wasn't. And then in Philip's translation, it's like this. The Son of Man came, I love this, enjoying life. Who said this? This is Jesus. You have to imagine. Jesus is standing there. And he says, I came enjoying life. And people say, look, a drunkard and a glutton. Now, here Jesus is. He has the most serious mission in the history of humanity, yet he enjoyed being a human being. He didn't just say, I'm a human being. God became vulnerable. He enjoyed being a human being. He was holy, sinless. Let Jesus, yet Jesus fully embraced the good and beautiful things of life, family, friends, feasting, and more. Now, and this is the bulk of the rest of what I'll say, and then I'll try to close this thing. Part of what's happening now at the wedding of Cana is the re-education of the disciples of John the Baptist. This is really important. Remember, just a few days before, these guys are hanging out with John the Baptist in the wilderness. Now here they are sitting with Jesus at this wedding celebration. See, when Jesus said that he came enjoying life in Matthew 11, he was responding to a message from John the Baptist, who was in prison now and who had heard about all the things that Jesus was doing. And John was evidently not very happy with what Jesus was doing. And he sends a message to Jesus and he says, quote, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? It's amazing. Last week, John sang, there's the one. Now here Jesus is. John's been thrown in prison, and Jesus, well, he's doing things that John is saying, Ugh. and he says, are you real? Did I make a mistake? And to, to which Jesus responds by telling him some things he was doing that should cause John to feel comfortable. And then he compliments John and says, never has a greater person ever lived than John the Baptist. But then Jesus went on to make this dramatic statement 
that I've read to you here just a moment ago that contrasted the manner in which he and John came to do ministry and life. In fact, he says that John's preaching was more like the songs you would sing at a funeral and his were more like the songs you would sing at a wedding feast. Matthew 11, again, Jesus, this is Jesus. We played wedding songs, you didn't dance, so we played funeral songs, you didn't mourn. For John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus said he was enjoying life in response to a message from John in prison. Do you get this picture? And you got to get this picture now that the people closest to Jesus have among them a number of John the Baptist disciples. But see, Jesus comes along and he introduces a new age, a new manner of living and leading in every way. Remember, John the Baptist was the last prophet of the law. Jesus comes and initiates an entire new era. And this new era is, is a time of grace. It, now, the law came by grace, but John lets us know that what Jesus came was a better grace. And consider the contrast between these two men. John lived an ascetic life, dwelling in the wilderness, existing on a diet of locusts and wild honey. As a Nazarite, no razor had ever touched his head. He dressed in burlap. His communication style was somewhat harsh. It's a stretch to imagine John or his disciples having a whole lot of fun. You can't see John the Baptist hanging out at a dinner party with friends. You sure can't imagine John the Baptist putting water in religious jars and turning it into wine. But in here John begins to lose some of his disciples to Jesus while they're both ministering for a while simultaneously. In fact, there's a time where John the Baptist and Jesus are baptizing down the river from each other, or the followers of Jesus are baptizing in his name. There's, a, there's an occasion while Jesus was at a dinner party with his disciples that John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we, I mean, hear this, guys, the disciples of John the Baptist who didn't leave John to join Jesus, who are still with John who's in prison, came and said, Jesus is at a dinner party. Just imagine. He doesn't look very spiritual, right? Hey, listen to this. These, these guys show up and say, how do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is still with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and they will fast. Listen, Jesus fasted, obviously, 40 days and 40 nights. We are taught to fast. In fact, I encourage you, don't feast if you don't fast, okay? But I might also say don't fast if you don't feast. Because the fact is Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast that a king threw for his son. See, John, John was, was, a, was a law guy. His job was to tell people, and this was his job, and he did it, that they'd fallen short and to prepare them for Jesus. But we're taught in Scripture that the law is a schoolmaster that leads us to grace. The law is not a permanent condition in this regard. It's something that lets us know where we've fallen short so we can come to Jesus, so Jesus can help us be more and better than we ever could have been in ourselves. But the law is not a normal state. We're to live in a state of grace. Now, I'm going to close this thing here. I think that the, that the human default position is law. And this always worries me about sincere Christian people. 
What do I mean by law? We have an innate desire to earn our way to acceptance, to do enough, to be good enough, to be worthy enough. Even though I know I'm accepted by God through grace and faith, I sometimes have a challenge living gracefully. I get messages from prison. I get messages from prison that say to me, how can you be the real deal if you're enjoying life? It's as though in order for it to be hard, in order for it to be real, it has to be hard. It's as if it's a sin to be happy. Listen, I get messages from prison, guys. I was raised, and some of my preaching is probably a response to this, frankly, what I've come to understand about grace, but I was raised in a very legalistic Christian environment where so much, almost everything was about the rules, the rules, the rules, the rules, the rules. You're going to go to hell if. You're going to go to hell if you don't. You're going to go to if you do, somehow or another, you're probably all going to end up going to hell. You went to church and you said the preacher did a good job according to how bad he made you feel. If he could make you feel really low and really bad, you'd say, oh, buddy, you really preached a good sermon today. And what I'm going to tell you is that that might have been the John the Baptist way, but that was not the Jesus way. Now, he talked about serious subjects. He talked about serious subject. He discussed hell. I don't want to, to ignore that. But the overall environment was not a law environment. It was a grace environment. Here's what happened. We meet Jesus, but John the Baptist keeps sending us messages. That thought system informed by our Baptist or Pentecostal or Catholic or whatever upbringing sends a message and says, you can't possibly really be happy. You shouldn't be enjoying this new wine. It's like a religious codependent guys religion says you can't be happy if you're happy something must be wrong where's the guilt and shame well here's the deal Jesus took those religious containers that used to hold guilt and shame and he filled it with new wine he took lifeless dead religion and filled it with forgiveness and love and life Who would want to hang out with John the Baptist when you can hang out with Jesus? And again, don't misunderstand me. John the Baptist did what he was supposed to do. It's just that now, as Jesus sat there at that feast in Cana, he ushers in a new age. And he says, this is what my glory looks like. Here's the third and final thing, the keyboard player is coming. I'm done. And I, I, I don't know what to say about it. How long-winded I am. I guess I'm just long. I'm going to quit anyway. Here's the third thing. How to be drunk on life. It's the other thing I think Jesus teaches us about his glory and about ourselves. See, all of life can be animated by new wine. Now, someone did a study of all the references to alcohol in the Bible. Don't get too nervous. I'm saying this to make a larger point. There are 247 of them. 59% of them are positive and associated with God's blessings. 16% are cautionary, primarily warning against abuse. 25% are neutral. So for many of us, wine wine is a symbol of the celebration of life. But for others of us who have abused it or who might abuse it, because it can destroy our lives and the lives of people we love, we shouldn't touch it. So some people can some people shouldn't and then there are other people their conscience is just bothered by it 
And as long as your conscience is informed by Scripture and not a message from prison, your conscience being bothered by it is a good reason not to do it as well. The Scripture in Romans 14 lets us know that regardless where one stands in this, the truth is we just don't judge each other as it concerns this. But my point is a larger point. Regardless, you know, your relationship with wine, wine, all of us can drink the new wine. And we drink the new wine when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. When we believe in Jesus and his spirit comes and makes us alive, this empty container is filled with new wine. You remember the church being born in Acts chapter 2? You remember how when the Holy Spirit came that some made fun of the people who'd been filled with the Holy Spirit and said they've had too much wine? (laughs) I love it. Then Peter stood up and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. These people are not drunk as you suppose. Now, he didn't say they weren't drunk. He said they weren't drunk as you suppose because it's only nine in the morning. The bars aren't even open. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. It's like Paul said to the Ephesians, do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery instead be filled with the spirit the fact is guys we can get drunk but what we get drunk on is real life eternal life the life that jesus came the life that jesus brings when he takes dead lifeless things and breathes his spirit on it empty containers are full of new wine when we're filled with the spirit of god jesus animates everything in our lives all right so i asked the band today a very simple thing i said i want to close with a happy song i don't even know what this song's called it's just a, i got to hear it in the first service it's just a happy song Here's a question I have, especially those of us who are sincere and passionate about our faith in Jesus, as all of us must be. Do you feel just as spiritual when you're just singing a happy song about Jesus as you do when you're singing some more passionate one? I, 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 I feel Jesus either way. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm trying to say is we need to get a happy view of God. God sometimes and he reveals his glory in a lot of ways but it's a pretty big deal that the first time he revealed his his glory was in a happy celebration of life and today i just want to close by celebrating the life that jesus brings 